that classy. You like that, Scott? This is a new era of Met Conversations. We have we have music now. Welcome to another episode of Med Conversations, delivered to you short and sweetly after our last episode on pacemakers, which I'm going to say was a hit. I actually have no data to back that up, but I feel like it was a hit. I'm here, it's Rahul, and I'm here with Scott, and today we're going to be talking about antimicrobial stewardship, something that's very close to my heart. So antimicrobial stewardship. So this is something which is really important, and it begs the question of, are we entering a post-antibiotic age? What do you think, Rahul? Uh, what's happening? I'm going to say no. The hype is overdone. I just want to be controversial. All right. <laughs> I don't even know if that's the controversial opinion. Is that the controversial well, one? Well, just stop listening to this episode then. It's probably not very important <laughs> to worry about. But I guess there's concern that like many common infections that we can treat really easily now, we might not be able to treat in the future if antibiotic resistance keeps increasing. We might be kind of back in the Middle Ages and going to try out some of those interventions like leeches and things. Mm. They've so, never really had a full randomized trial, have they? So maybe it's time. I think it is time. Um, so just to kind of run through some of the things that people are worried about, there's things like ESBLs becoming really common in some countries. Um, and some of these bugs have no oral options. So patients have to come into hospital just to have a UTI treated. Yeah. Just run me through. What does ESBL stand for again? So throwback to the other episode, it's uh, resistant to keftriaxone and yeah. most of the kind of earlier generations of kephalosporins and penicillins. So it's extended spectrum beta-lactamases. Extended, yeah, exactly. Extended spectrum because it's resistant to keftriaxone, beta-lactamases. And we'll talk about it a bit more later in this episode as well. Okay. Um, CPE or carbapenemase producing enterobacteriaceae also becoming common. These are bugs that are even resistant to meropenem and the other carbapenems. And just give me... Sorry, I'm just going to keep dialing this back to cardiologist level knowledge, but Enterobacteriaceae, I'm guessing from the name, they live in the in the gut? Yeah, it's it's a general word for a big group of bacteria that, um, gram-negative bacteria that often live in the gut. So things like E. coli and Klebsiella. Okay. And then we're getting some uh, potentially untreatable pathogens. So we're getting things like pan-resistant pseudomonas or gonorrhea. So there's they've found gonorrhea that's been... Um, uh, re- the different gonorrhea strains that have been resistant to every antibiotic that we have. So they haven't yet found the one that's resistant to everything, but they have found strains of gonorrhea that are super resistant. So What did they end up treating Darvo with then? I don't know. <laughs> Prayers. <laughs> <laughs> His preferred mode of treatment. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, we're getting patients with, there was a patient, for example, with Klebsiella in 2016 who had a hip abscess that was pan-resistant to 26 antibiotics that they tested. And who died of septic shock. So, 26 antibiotics. Wow, they gave it a good run before then. Or would, would that have been tested in a petri dish before they tried it on the patient? Um, so, they would have tried. <laughs> I think they tried it in a petri dish. That would be like an impressive, just logistical challenge <laughs> to give a patient 26 different antibiotics. Also, it would be uh, interesting to give them the really like common, uh, narrow ones as well. Yeah. An interesting clinical choice. Yeah. Um, but the thing about this antimicrobial stewardship is that it's not all bad news. We, we can affect it, unlike maybe some other global problems like climate change, where our political institutions are being co-opted. But let's leave that for another... Um, well, non- I think that's, yeah, that's a nice little taste of optimism, though. So many of these... I feel like antimicrobial resistance does fall into that bucket of climate change, of like things that are going to end the world soon and we're all doomed. But it's nice to know that at least this one's modifiable. Yeah, so I'm going to give you a really optimistic example. So MRSA or um, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. So that's Staph aureus that's resistant to uh, things like flucloxacillin or oxacillin. 
And th- this was the reason why all your older patients still know about this golden staff thing is it was very much in the news in the early 2000s because there was this big global epidemic of increasing rates of MRSA. So, it so was, that's essentially staph aureus, which is that really common bug that's found everywhere, but it's resistant to the most usual treatment that we use, which is methicillin or in Australia, flucloxacillin, right? That's what MRSA means? Exactly. So usually you, you often have to treat MRSA with vancomycin. Um, which obviously is an IV antibiotic, you have to dose it. It's a bit of a pain in the bum compared to just giving someone a, um, a bit oh, of flucloxacillin. Mm. So, um, you know, rates in, for example, in the UK got up into around 40, 48% in uh, about kind of 2001, 2002. And then um, they implemented all these big sets of um, uh, new um, hospital guidelines, including things like... Um, uh, testing patients for MRSA and decolonizing them, treating them with staph decolonization, with um, nasal mupuricin and cleaning all their clothes, etc. Um, they uh, created new protocols around how they did a lot of procedures using things like um, prophylaxis, aseptic techniques. They started reviewing lines more in the hospital. and um, But the number one intervention really was hand washing. Hand washing is absolutely the biggest, most important intervention for stopping staph. And they found that the rates of MRSA went down from in the high 40s all the way down to kind of the teens. So um, by the about 2015, about kind of 15%. That's awesome. And, and yeah, I mean, the people at home can't see this, but Scott's showing me a graph that shows the USA, unfortunately, not experiencing any decline in their MRSA numbers. But the UK one drops precipitously over just, what, 15 years? What is that, Scott? 15, 20 years? Yeah, so there was a bit of a decline in the USA, but the decline in the UK was huge. And and there was also an associated decline in deaths from MRSA. And throughout this period, the deaths from MSSA, so the sensitive one, stayed reasonably constant. So it really looked like there were these extra infections from these resistant bugs that were starting to disappear after we um, started all these protocols. So this is an example of how we can sort of improve antimicrobial effectiveness by stuff that's not even related to antimicrobial prescribing really that was about hand washing and cleaning up patients and decolonizing them and those sorts of things wasn't it It wasn't actually about changing the prescribing habits i think there might have been some stuff about using like increased focus on antibiotic guidelines to not use too broad antibiotics but you're right the the main thing were came under infection prevention and control which we'll talk about which are things like hand washing and Okay. Uh, protocols and things so basically it's not all futile we can have an impact and what happens in the hospital does matter yeah so um in terms of this episode um i'm just going to quickly reference that we did a gram positive and gram negative pathogen episodes and for background especially if you're a med student i probably recommend listening to those ones first because you might get a little bit lost here yeah just to get a grip on bacteria and antibiotics to start off with yeah um so first we're going to talk about what is antimicrobial stewardship basic principles, we're going to talk about what infection prevention and control is, then we're going to talk about antimicrobial resistance, so what, what does that mean to, for a bug to be resistant, how does it develop and spread and how do we know if something's resistant, we're going to talk about lots of complications of antibiotics and how to avoid them using some clinical cases, and then um, we're going to talk about some key clinical advice and really common questions I get asked as an ID reg. So we'll keep this really practical, the first half has a lot of principles and science and the second half will be case-based. But before we get to that saucy first half, let's listen to a saucy song. Some people might say they were overusing this new feature, but 
like a kid with a new toy. I think there is no such thing as overuse. So, back to the boring bit of this podcast, antimicrobial stewardship. Scott, <laughs> what is antimicrobial stewardship? So, antimicrobial stewardship, or AMS, means interventions and monitoring programs to encourage better use of antibiotics. So, this is usually using the right antibiotic, looking at the empiric therapy for different infections, and also the directed therapy once you've got some results, looking at the dosing, the route of the antibiotic, and the duration of um, the antibiotic administration. Hmm. So, and so, is it just antibiotics we're looking at? So it's AMS, so antimicrobials. So this also includes antifungals, antivirals, antiparasitics, but antibiotics are obviously the most common thing we give in hospitals. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I guess what's the goal of doing all this policing and you stopping me from having my unlimited antibiotics? So the reason why we uh, keep your hands, your dirty, dirty hands off the cook, out of the cookie jar is because the primary goal is to optimize clinical outcomes for that patient while minimizing unintended consequences of antimicrobial use. So that is things like side effects, um, increased antibiotic resistance in that patient and also in the broader population and costs and other allergies and problems that the patient might have. Okay, all right. And in a normal hospital, who actually does this? I feel like I've seen the little sticker back in the day of paper notes that said AMS round. Who's on an AMS round and, and yeah, how do they find patients and how do they do it? So every major hospital in most um, developed countries will have a formal AMS program. So this is often a weekly or bi-weekly ward round where there'll usually be a pharmacist, an ID doctor and a nurse who together go around and review all the patients, usually just the ones on broad spectrum or restricted antibiotics. And they just check whether the dosing looks appropriate. And sometimes they'll refer on to the um, ID team for a formal consult if they think it looks like it needs a bit more input. I was always wondering how they AMS managed to find out that I was using these crazy antibiotics. Is the pharmacist the snitch in this situation? Are they snitching on me? Yeah, I think they need to know how to like up, automatically upload all the patients who've had certain antibiotics. It's their fault. <laughs> Very smart. Yeah, keeping the cookies from you. Mm-hmm. So infection prevention and control, or IPC, is another word you get thrown around all the time, but I probably didn't know what it was for a few years in. But it basically means um, all the kind of non-antibiotic interventions for controlling infection. So particularly things like hand washing, um, uh, prevention of uh, infection transmission between patients, things like screening patients or isolating patients, putting them in contact precautions, um, also cleaning and um, the hospital environments. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. I think there's a bit of an eye roll, at least amongst a lot of doctors, when you know infection prevention and control unit comes to visit because you know it's often about being told to wash your hands properly and things like that. It can feel a little bit about like you're a kid in school again. But you know, as you were pointing out with that data around MRSA before, some of that stuff sounds like it's really important for going a long way in preventing antimicrobial resistance and, and problems. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of important things, it's often a bit, seems a bit boring or, True. you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's super important and you can have a difference and you um, not giving a resistant infection to your patient might be the most helpful thing you do in many cases as we kind of faff around with all our non-effectual interventions in a hospital. Mm. Um, like stents. Yeah, like stents. <laughs> the, yeah. The case of the century, all the unnecessary stents that were done, that we find out. Um, and but because the key thing is that everyone listening here, you are the people who will make most decisions involving antibiotics. It's not the ID team. It's not the formal AMS program. So it really is important that you guys like are invested and in trying to just make better antibiotic decisions. And it's not 
a, a situation where you're trying to sacrifice your patient for the good of the whole. <laughs> That's not Put what, them up on an altar. what AMS yeah. is trying to do. There's good evidence that it will help your patient if you give them the right antibiotic. Yeah, that's funny. I, yeah, that is kind of how I viewed it as though like, you know, for the greater good of preventing resistance, we're not going to give this patient the best treatment. But as you've sort of pointed out, actually it's about preventing resistance in that patient and side effects in that patient as well from, from antibiotics. Exactly. So what is antimicrobial resistance? We've spoken a lot about it today and it seems to be one of the really key goals of AMS is to prevent this resistance, but what is it and how does it come about? So um, drug susceptibility or resistance describes whether antibiotics work clinically against pathogens that cause infections, so not just necessarily from testing the lab. So usually this means that a pathogen will stop growing or be killed when a drug like an antibiotic is present. Okay, and so how does an... does it actually stop or how does a, a bacteria or whatever organism it is stop an antibiotic from working or an antimicrobial from working? Yeah, so we talked about this a bit in the other antibiotic episodes, but the, there are lots of mechanisms. The most common are inactivation of a drug, then modification of a drug target. So changing the point where the drug actually works in the bacteria so that it, the drug no longer works there, right? Exactly. Uh, limiting uptake of a drug. By the bacteria? By the bacteria, so right. stopping the drug from getting to where it's got to go to kill the bacteria. Right. An active efflux of a drug or pumping um, pumping the antibiotic out of the drug. Okay. At the antibiotic out of the bug. I mean, it is really fascinating when you think about it that these bacteria evolve so quickly and are able to do these things to, to these drugs. Yeah. Um, and you only really need to learn the specific mechanisms if you want to do ID or if you're doing physician training MCQs, probably, or some uni exams, but... You need to remember the concepts. And so I'll just run off some examples. So what about MSSA, methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus, compared to PSSA, penicillin-sensitive Staph aureus? Why, why is a methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus more resistant? Well, this one I remember. So, yeah, they used to be able to just use penicillin for everything, right? But then the Staph aureus started producing a beta-lactamase, which is like an enzyme, an ase, that breaks down beta-lactam antibiotics. And so... They no longer work. Are there any penicillin-sensitive Staph aureus around anymore? Is it like pretty much they're yeah. all? Yeah, they're actually getting more common in oh, a lot of places. Cool. Like a, well, in Australia, they're getting more a bit more common. I think that's because we're using those basic um, uh, penicillins less and less. Okay, interesting. Uh, which is yeah. So that's an example of an enzyme that breaks down or inactivates a drug, a, a beta lactamase in Staph aureus. Yeah, and then, but then for uh, the golden staph, staph aureus to become MRSA or methicillin resistant staph aureus, that's usually due to an altered penicillin binding protein in the cell wall that the antibiotic can't um, bind to anymore. I always find this really interesting. That protein was named after penic- it was found that penicillin binds to it, right? So they invented penicillin, found that it binds to that protein in the bacteria, and then named that protein after the, th- the drug that binds to it, which is kind of like an inverse way of naming a protein. I like that. But yeah. so that, that it, the MRSA kind of alters where the penicillin binds and it no longer works. Is that what you said? Alters me? the protein, yeah. Alters the, so the binding site doesn't work with penicillin. So that's, that's the, that second mechanism. So the modification of the target of the drug. Then there's other things which can um, limit the uptake of a drug, like, for example, vancomycin intermediate staph aureus, which um, needs, has kind of, it's a bit resistant to vancomycin. It sometimes needs high doses of vancomycin or is, is difficult to treat. And this, in this one, the, um, the bacteria actually has a thickened cell wall that it's hard for the drug to get in 
Okay, so like you were saying, that's a limiting of the uptake of the drugs. I can't actually get in unless you give a really high dose of vancomycin. Yeah, it's not getting to that site to, to stop the bacterial growth. Mm. And then the last one we talked about, so active efflux, so bacteria that pump out the um, antibiotic. And that's um, something that we see in lots of gram negatives. Um, and they can, sometimes it's multi-drug efflux. So they'll have something that pumps out lots of different antibiotics. Or sometimes it's specific to one drug. And an example would be E. coli and doxycycline resistance is often mediated by that. But you do not have to remember that. It's That's really concept. fascinating. I mean, and this is completely off topic. I mean, you haven't prepared for this at all, Scott, but I'm going to fire this question at you anyway. Are we going to be constantly in a quote-unquote arms race with bacteria? Is there anything on the horizon that like maybe it would be too hard for them to evolve against? Or like, you know, is there, like is there a solution to this? A Kronos, Ultimo, Yeah, <laughs> I'm imagining some sort of Thanos-like <laughs> snap of the fingers. Or something. I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, as we'll talk about later, bacteria are really good at evolving resistance. So I think it's always going to be an arms race. Just It's, it's just evolution, really, yeah. between the antibiotics and bacterial resistance. Mm, fascinating. So um, some bacteria are intrinsically or natively resistant to antibiotics, and some bacteria can acquire or mutate resistance. So, for example, um, Enterococcus, um, like Enterococcus faecalis, Enterococcus um, faecium, are intrinsically resistant to cephalosporins. So um, they don't usually work because most... Well, I think all um, enterococcus have this different penicillin binding protein, PBP5. Um, so it just doesn't work. Okay. But you might have a range of different E. coli, and some of the E. coli will have ESBL genes that make them resistant to keftriaxone, and some don't. So we often test them in the lab and find out what they are. Yeah. Now this, I think, do you talk about this later? But this is really fascinating, and I recently had to learn it because I sat my US exams, that uh, bacteria can swap genes between each other which is fascinating, by multiple different mechanisms. Do you talk about this later? Have I, yeah, talk about it later. Have I been yeah. premature again? Yeah, premature again. Okay. I'm sorry. Must have been tapping again. Um, so, uh, yeah, basically bacterial resistance mechanisms, uh, and these are all caused by genetics, and some of them might be polygenetic, more than one gene causing these resistance mechanisms, or they might we might not know yet why a bacteria is resistant, but... Um, uh, it can be intrinsic or it can come from mutations or bacteria can share their genes. Okay. So to kind of explain that a bit more, um, it, it's all evolution that's going on. And bacteria have um, DNA in a, in a single chromosome, not 46 like us. And they also have lots of these little plasmids. So plasmids are little DNA circles in bacteria, which only have a few genes on them, little packet of genes. And then all the plasmids and the chromosome in a bacteria are called the genome or all the genes in it. Um, but the important thing about these little plasmids is that they're mobile and they're um, more easily shared between bacteria through horizontal transfer. So remember, vertical transfer is like uh, mum to baby. Mother to daughter, yep, gotcha. Yep, Horizon horizontal transfer is me sharing my genes with you. That sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this weekend? <laughs> yeah, well, I've got a free schedule. Which is pretty amazing that, um, you know, it's like, uh, and bacteria can do this not only between individuals of a species, but... Even between bacteria of um, different species can sometimes share their genes. Um, right. Yeah, I do. That's fascinating. That is really fascinating. Mm. Does this have something to do with, side note, something to do with CRISPR? Or no, that's how bacteria fight viruses. That's how they found the CRISPR protein, right? Uh, I'd have to look it up. can't anyway, remember. Don't worry. Um, so uh, it, it's like a gorilla sharing a, a big rig gene to a human. Okay. That's Did a you like that joke? Was it? No. Okay. Maybe I didn't get it. 
It's not really a joke. Okay. Um, bacteri- so bacterial evolution, because of this horizontal gene transfer, is so much faster than humans. They don't need to have generations and recon- recombine their genes in order to evolve. So you might remember from our other podcast that ESBL and CPE, so extended spectrum beta-lactamases resistant to keftriaxone and earlier antibiotics, and um, carbapenemase producing enterobacteriaceae, are two of the most most important multi-drug resistant gram-negatives. Um, and, and sorry, CPE are usually resistant to carbapenems like meropenem. Um, so these are um, uh, usually on plasmids, so they're more most easily spread between bacteria. Um, and most patients with CPE infection um, are colonized with these resistant bacteria in their gut prior to getting the infection with the bug. So you're telling me, does it mean that if I am a person who has CPE on me, that all the new bacteria that come to the party, are like, well, at least of that variety, can get the CPE resistance gene from the ones that are already living inside me? So they can. It's still not like super easy because... Obviously, the bacteria, I mean, I'm, I'm not a you know, microbiologist, microbiologist yeah. or whatever, but um, have like processes to stop just randomly accepting genes all the time. Right. right but it's right. something which intermittently they do. Okay. All and right. particularly if the selection pressures, like if you're on antibiotics on for a long time, yeah, right. that evolutionary selection pressure in your gut and then all the other ones are dying. And they're leaving their genes around with their cell walls destroyed. The other ones are picking them up. Yeah. There's all these different processes which, um, which they should have genes, a look at. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Um, so some of the risk factors for things like CPE that um, you might hear me ask you on the phone if you call me to ask whether a patient needs meropenem are things like overseas hospitalization in a country with high rates of CPE. Um, uh, if, if you're in Australia, in, in the US, it's, it's much more common or even in some parts of Europe. Um, but in a lot of the kind of uh, countries with lower health resources, it's, it's very common. Um, uh, if the patient's been on long-term antibiotics, if they've had long hospital stays, or if they've been living in a country with high resistance rates. And in Australia, for example, we screen any patient who's been admitted overseas um, within the last two years to a hospital. We screen them for CPE with a rectal swab. Huh. Is there an easier way to do that, or just a rectal swab is a good way to do it, I guess? I don't know. I guess any not. other suggestions? Or? Uh, nasal swab <laughs> would be nice, I guess. Mouth swab. Basically, any other orifice would probably be preferable. Because <laughs> I, I have patients who get these rectal swabs and... They don't like it. Well, they they never mention it, actually. But I just, I'm like, do we need... I suppose that was the only way. Well, I mean, they're in the gut, so you're probably not going to find them in the mouth. Um, I've got a separate question for you. Again, I'm just firing this one off, and you may not know the answer to it. But why is it the case that in low-resource countries, there's more of these really sort of um, potent, multi-resistant organisms? Is it because they don't have antimicrobial stewardship, or is it for other reasons yeah i think there's lots of reasons so that's that's one of the reasons like there's much less regulation so in a lot of um uh, low resource countries you can just like buy a dose of meropenem over the counter at the pharmacy and Mm. buy some injecting equipment and and, like inject yourself with it (laughs) all the things you can inject yeah (laughs) you you can imagine that like you know as opposed to here where not only do you need to be in a hospital but you need to have like a infection doctor and pharmacist kind of authorize it yeah a lot of countries don't have like a really formal script program for authorizing those antibiotics but then it also comes from um you know uh there's this increasing concept of one health so there's kind of humans, animals, and the environment, right. and um, it's all kind of interrelated. And the more so we fuck up the environment, using antibiotics and things like that in in slaughterhouses. Exactly, okay. like in like a lot of livestock farming and industrial farming, they'll use like mass amounts of antibiotics. Um, and also remember that when people have antibiotics, they don't just have it and it just disappears. Like it'll be in their poo and it'll go into the system. Like it's all all the water is constantly being yeah, reused. Like we're part of all these cycles. Ecosystem, you know? huh? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. I mean, it's a really strong argument for antimicrobial stewardship, the fact that, you know, in the countries where it is available and strong, there is much lower rates of these really potent infections. Yeah. And and even, uh, I guess the other thing to mention is that, you know, things like poverty and stuff where people are kind of crammed together, they don't have clean drinking water, they don't have clean food, there aren't regulations around kind of cleaning environments and stuff. Like that's also a big risk factor for spreading some of these bugs. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. And I guess if the bugs can transfer these genes to each other, the more bugs you have transferred and spread to people, the more opportunities you have for that to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, some mutations are harder to evolve than others, or we see them less frequently, um, and some have kind of a low threshold, but this is going to get into the stuff that ID physicians worry about. But the important thing is that you know kind of the concepts here. So we've got this um, bacterial resistance through plasmids and um, chromosome genes, and um, at these plasmids, these little circular ones, once they spread around, they're kind of like a wind-up toy. They're just constantly coating their, pro- um, their proteins and pumping them out. Whereas bacterial chromosomes have more, a bit more complex, have more regulatory genes. They can switch production of a protein on or off. So plasmids can use a lot of energy and they can be lost over time if they're not used. So the kind of flip side of this evolutionary process is that if we look at most studies of CPE, carbapenemase producing enterobacteriaceae, these ones we really worry about, we found that in most patients, courage lasts under a year. Um, it kind of depends on the organism and the. And oh, the, so, um, so what you're saying? So if they get the mutation that makes them resistance from a plasmid, and that plasmid sort of using a lot of energy but not providing much benefit, it gets shut down over time. And so a previously resistant bacteria can become a non-resistant bacteria with time. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So and then that patient will be less predisposed to having a really resistant bacteria that has a much higher mortality rate. And, and the flip side of that is if you keep using that antibiotic and they keep get using that plasmid to be resistant then that plasmid is going to stick around and they'll remain resistant yeah so exactly another argument for ams okay that's what you're saying yeah so um next i was going to talk about a really brief version of how we test for resistance and what resistance is so you could obviously do like multiple podcasts just on this topic but everyone would fall asleep i think Rel's giving me a I'd look be glued so. <laughs> glued to the microphone and speakers so um, we talk about uh, uh, patients can have phenotypic resistance, which is expression of resistance. So that's when we no- notice that a bacteria or an organism is resistant. And that can be in vitro, so in the lab, or in vivo, so um, in life. Um, and we can also do uh, molecular testing for resistance. So we can just look for a gene that we've already worked out that causes resistance oh, through a particular mechanism. Okay, so you're not, you haven't actually tested the, them with that antibiotic. You've just seen something that would suggest that they're probably going to be resistant to that antibiotic. Exactly. So, yeah, in vancomycin-resistant enterococci, for example, you might, we sometimes do PCR, looking for the VAN-A or VAN-B genes that can cause vancomycin resistance. And if we find those genes, then we know that those bacteria are probably resistant to vancomycin. And I'm guessing doing that PCR is a lot quicker than, you know, trying to culture the bacteria than testing the antibiotic on it. Is that why? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, So in the lab, they do lots of tests on bacteria. Um, So, for example, on all those plates that you see. And what the main kinds of tests that they do are they test growth of a bacteria or pathogen with antibiotics at increasing concentrations. And then they see how high the concentration has to be in order to stop growth of that pathogen. And then they call that point the the minimum inhibitory concentration, or MIC. And they're those numbers that sometimes they release from the lab, sometimes they don't, but you might see them 
sometimes. Yeah, I've seen those before. On a microbiology report. But usually the lab produce those numbers, but then we keep them to ourselves. Cookie we, jar. Cookie yeah, jar. Cookie jar. Because <laughs> we don't want people over-interpreting them or think they mean things that they don't. Because there's a real art to interpreting these because um, we compare these values to a set of reference values called breakpoints. And if the MIC is higher than this reference value, the bug is considered resistant. We'll write a little R usually. And if it's lower, we'll um, say the bug's sensitive. Okay. So if the lab tests a bacteria and an antibiotic and the, um, there's a high minimum inhibitory concentration, then that means that the bug is resist, probably resistant to an antibiotic if it's higher than that break point. Because you need a lot of the antibiotic to inhibit the bacterial growth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, um, and you don't need to know about this, but there's some different methods that they use to work this out. Um, there's something called broth microdilution. Well, they just basically use different concentrations of an antibiotic in little wells and then they put little bits of the bug in there and see when it grows and when it doesn't. There's things, this very intensive process called agar dilution where they use different sets of whole plates with different concentrations of the antibiotic and then see if the bug grows. So you can imagine you need like dozens of, of plates. Yeah. Dozens of plates. It's a lot of work. Or um, a much kind of easier on the lab staff version is called disc diffusion. We just have like a, a little... Um, stick that goes down on the uh, agar and with that kind of releases antibiotic concentration gradient right along a gradient yeah, yeah exactly so one end of the stick you've got lots of a very high concentration of the antibiotic and the other end you've got a very low concentration of the antibiotic and then you can see where the uh, bacteria grows on the plate it's always amazing how many things are going on in the bowels of a hospital that you're unaware of when you're sort of practicing up on the wards or you know just in the surface level part of it i mean the same for a lot of departments. I'm sure the hematologists are doing some crazy things in the basement. Crazy yeah. things. <laughs> <laughs> we should, don't really want to be thanking them for that. Though, <laughs> it's like a Pizzagate Just conspiracy. Satan worshipper. Um, but uh, remember that the body is not as simple as just some like saline with some antibody concentration in it. There's a really complex interaction between the pathogen, the tissues, the immune system, um, how things are flowing. Remember, stasis is the basis. A, a lot of infection are caused by block of natural kind of flushing out processes, for example, mm -hmm. urinary tract infections. Mm -hmm. So they work out, it's, there's this really complex process and a lot of thinking that goes into deciding these breakpoints using lots of different information, including pharmacokinetics of the drug to know not just if you take a tablet, what will the concentration be, but what will the concentration be in your blood? What will it be in your brain? What will it be in your bone? How long will it last there? Um, and then also looking at things like uh, good cutoff points that distinguish well between the sens sensitive wild type, kind of normal bacteria and more resistant bacteria. And also incorporating clinical data about treatment failure from different trials. So you don't need to like remember all that, but just know that there's all these kind of microbiologists and scientists and things coming up with these numbers. And then there's a lot of thought that goes into getting that little S or that little R that comes next to the antibiotic. Yeah. Um, well, it's giving me a lot of respect for you right now. I'm looking at you in a new light, Scott. It's well, I don't do any of this work, but <laughs> I'm also one of the uh, <laughs> the users that just uses other people's hard work. So <laughs> there's a lot of hardworking microbiologists that do a lot of this stuff. Mm. Um, so basically, some bacteria are always resistant to certain antibiotics. Other ones can acquire or uh, evolve resistance. Uh, we test them in the lab. We compare them to these reference values or uh, breakpoints. And then we decide whether they're sensitive or resistant, and then the lab just feeds you out that little number. Okay. That's a 
really good summary of how they come up with that uh, sensitive or resistance um, declaration on a, on a bacteria. Yeah. So, so far we've been pretty um, abstract and kind of scientific, but I think now if you've survived that and you're still listening, we're going to try and run through some different cases and just give some really practical stuff that I'm asked about all the time. So remember AMS means optimizing your antibiotics and that's the right antibiotic, both empiric antibiotics and, and tailored antibiotics once you have some results, the right dose, the right route, the right duration. So, Raul, do you want to... Oh, yeah, I'll read the case. This case? Um, so Sally is a 29-year-old accountant. Wow, this is a very, very mundane case <laughs> compared to what we normally do. Um, <laughs> who presented no, no to plum tycoon. <laughs> who presented to hospital with worsening abdominal pain. Using her counting abilities to inform you, the Gen Surge Reg. <laughs> Sorry, I've completely messed up. <laughs> I'm going to start from the top there. It's too mundane for me to read it in a normal way. <laughs> Sally is a 29-year-old accountant, apparently, who presented to hospital with worsening abdominal pain. Using her counting abilities to inform you, the Gen Surge Reg that... <laughs> I, think, I think it's how it's written. <laughs> Unclear if Sally is using her accounting abilities to inform me. Is Sally the gen surgery? <laughs> no, I was wrong. This case is actually really interesting. Uh, <laughs> grammatically. Okay. We've had an intermission. Scott is going to read. I'm going to jump in. So this is for when everyone asks us to share our med conversation notes. And we share the secret that it's actually extremely poorly formatted. <laughs> the grammar is shocking. Some Part of it's in wingdings. The real <laughs> miracle of this podcast is that we can actually read the information that's here in front of us and get it to you in an intelligible way. Very yeah. intelligible. It's most of the process that's coming up. <laughs> so you're a Gen Surge Reg. Sally's an accountant. There's a bad joke about her counting because that's what accountants do. And she has right iliac fossa pain that's been present for 1,624 1, minutes. A bit more than 24 hours. Oh, that was... Okay, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Me now. Yeah. Um, a CT shows some free fluid in the pelvis and she's referred for a laparoscopic appendectomy. Okay. What yeah. empiric antibiotic should be used? Uh, well, I guess if I was going to talk about my process, I would be looking up um, some guidelines or calling someone else. Um, but yeah, guidelines-wise, in Australia, I'd be using the therapeutic guidelines. Also known as ETG. ETG. So you can get it on your phone. It's a uh, really useful app. It's got really nice brief summaries of a lot of medical conditions as well. It's great if you're kind of a resident or medical student. It was extremely handy when I was an intern and resident, yeah. Mm. Um, if you're in the UK, the NICE guidelines are good. Um, in the US, uh, Sanford is an amazing app that I always hawk that I think is really quick to use, quick off the draw, and really convenient, has doses and everything. Um, and or you can use the IDSA guidelines. Unfortunately, they're not updated in real time, like in the UK or Australia, but you can find that they kind of, every few years, they'll do a big review article and look at antibiotic recommendations for different conditions. Because remember, antibiotic resistance will be different in different countries. Okay, and so, you know, this lady's got intra-abdominal infection of some variety, presumably appendicitis. Uh, so what does the ETG, the therapeutic guidelines, say for that? So ETG says gentamicin, metronidazole, and ampicillin, all IV. Um, so uh, gentamicin for the gram negatives, metronidazole for the anaerobes, and ampicillin for um, gram positives, particularly enterococcus. Mm -hmm. um, and it gives you some other options of using keftriaxone and metronidazole or using intravenous augmentin. So just, just a quick note here. Um, Gentamicin or tobramycin, so the aminoglycosides, some doctors don't like using them very much because they can cause permanent hearing loss or vestibular toxicity. 
Uh, but that's usually after patients have had quite a few doses of them. So I'm usually very happy to use them and they've got really fast killing power, but um, I'll always chart them as one-off doses. And then, cause you only need to give them once a day. And then the next day, if I think the patient still needs it, I'll chart another one-off dose instead of kind of leaving a patient on it. And I've actually met a doctor before who was in Nepal when he was a first year medical student and has now permanent hearing loss because they just gave him like seven days in a row oh, of wow. um, aminoglycosides. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, that, so, you know, I guess looking at this from an AMS point of view, I've, I've gone on the guidelines and I've worked out my empiric antibiotics. What's the rest of my process here? How am I minimizing or, you know, helping out the broader community and this patient from, uh, <laughs> from facing the perils of antibiotic resistance? Yeah, so um, the patient, so Sally has her surgery, they send off some pus from her abdomen, they find peritonitis everywhere, and um, we wait and see what comes back. So we see, did you go on E. coli, did you go on ESBL, did you go on enterococcus? And that might guide what antibiotics you use based on the bacteria and what resistance patterns they have. Remembering that infections like this are usually polymicrobial, so even if you go a bug, you want some reasonably broad cover as well. So um, the key thing here is that, um, remember, the treatment for appendicitis isn't antibiotics. The treatment is surgery. So if, if Sally had had uncomplicated appendicitis, so if she'd had no perforation or abscess and um, didn't have septic shock, then you can usually stop the antibiotics immediately post-appendectomy. And if you look at ETG, that's what it recommends. Um, and really, if you don't want to listen anymore to the podcast, the, probably the one most important message is if you just read ETG or therapeutic guidelines more and just do what it says, you'll be doing a really good job. Okay. But the, the, the sort of meta process here is really thinking about you know, hitting a guideline first and working out your, what empiric antibiotics you should be using before you have any specimens back and then re- setting a sort of goal of when you're going to review therapy. So when you're going to actually sort of focus down those antibiotics, which sounds like in this case or in a lot of cases is when you get a specimen that comes back that gives you some more information or if the patient has some change in status like surgery, which then might need you to reevaluate what you're doing with your antibiotics. Exactly. Always read the surgical report and see how much infection was there and did they get good source control? Did they clear out all the infected part of the patient? Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. That's all right. Um, and so the next question is, when should she switch to oral therapy? Mm-hmm. And again, this is a bit vague, but usually we say tolerating tablets and clinically improving. Mm-hmm. So maybe in a couple of days. And does everyone need to switch to oral therapy? Or is this one of those things you look at the guidelines for again? And if they sort of say, you know, three days of IV is fine. And then if they have the surgery or three days of IV in general is fine with no tail. Is that you can have patients who don't need oral therapy after intravenous antibiotics? Um, so I, I guess it depends how many days I've already had because the recommendation for the total duration is five days. Of, that's including your intravenous therapy and your oral therapy from when the patient had the surgery. So if the patient's already had kind of you know four or five days of IV, then they probably won't need an oral tail. Okay. So this is, again, something that I'd probably find in the guidelines that I'm looking at. Yeah, have a good read of um, ETG. And look, if you've been on the wards, you probably noticed that a lot of patients will get more than five days of... Um, of antibiotic therapy for intra-abdominal infection like um, ruptures, colon or um, perforated appendicitis. Um, but the ETG recommends five days and part of the reason is there was this big trial called the Stop It trial done in 2015. And this randomized uh, over 500 patients across 23 sites in the US um, to get a short course of antibiotics, so just four days then stop after the operation. If, versus a long course of any longer course of antibiotics which average about eight days but 
was based on patients um, becoming afebrile, having a reduced white blood cell below 11 and, and starting on oral intake. Um, these patients all had um, intra-abdominal surgery. They could have had percutaneous drainage or it could have been uh, a, a laparoscopic or a, a laparotomy where they um, opened it up and kind of got all the, uh, the pus out of the patient's abdomen. Um, and they, uh, they, they did exclude patients who the surgeon thought they didn't have good source control. So the surgeon thought there were still some abscesses in there or infection that they couldn't uh, get rid of with the washout or with patients who were planned for another laparotomy. Um, and they actually found that there was no, there was the, the average antibiotic duration between the two groups was four days versus eight days, and there was no significant difference in outcomes. So they had a composite outcome of um, surgical site infection of the abdominal uh, wound site, recurrent intra-abdominal infection, like an abscess or something still there, or death. Um, and they found that there was the composite outcome was 21.8% um, in the short antibiotic course and 22% and in the uh, longer antibiotic course. Yeah, wow, you don't get, don't get much closer than that, huh? So there truly was no difference between a short and a long antibiotic course. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, death was similar, surgical site infection was similar, recurrent intra-abdominal infection was similar. I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about these patients were pretty unwell. They had peritonitis, they had inflammatory response syndromes, they were at febrile and at high white cell counts, and five days of antibiotics with appropriate surgery was enough. Yeah, and I think it just reinforces the point that, you know, the treatment of these infections is surgery, and the antibiotics is really just to mop up some of the stuff on the side. Just remembering that if a patient doesn't have surgery for intra-abdominal infection or abscess, then sometimes they actually need really long course of antibiotics because that's not the optimal treatment. Mm -hmm. want to get the knives in if you can. So um, let's do another case. Okay. So uh, I might do it this time because only I can read these un indecipherable notes. That's nice that you <laughs> in front of this me. about my reading ability. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mr. Borborygmus. 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 <laughs> it's a Turkish name, isn't it? Uh Probably, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like it. It's also the name of stomach rumbles is a little aside. But he's a 64-year-old man in ICU for four weeks after a cardiac arrest for a STEMI. With a, um, coronary ah, we're talking. This is good. Yeah, this is uh, probably uh, one of your cases, isn't it? It's gone very <laughs> badly. <laughs> uh, he had a coronary artery bypass graft, which was complicated by a sternotomy superficial surgical site infection and a ventilator-assisted pneumonia. And four weeks later, and multiple course of antibiotics, he's still on broad-spectrum antibiotics and not really getting better. Most recently, he's been on kefepime for seven days. And when you... What's kefepime, Scott? Uh, so it's a cephalosporin antibiotic. Is it really broad? It's very broad, yep. Okay. It's one of the antibiotics recommended for ventilator-assisted... Uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, okay. or VAP. So it's a pretty recall. serious antibiotic. He's been on this for seven days, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and you are called to review him for new fevers and increased white blood cell count. Uh, being thorough, you chat with the ICU nurse looking after him and you note that he's had 10 stools per day for the last two days. And fast forwarding a little bit, a stool is positive for C. diff toxin. What's C. diff toxin? Clostridium difficile toxin. So there's a couple of different um, tests that hospitals do on stools to work out if a patient has Clostridium difficile or C. diff. Um, and they can test for the toxin, they can test for the toxigenic gene, um, and they can try and culture the, the stool and grow Clostridium difficile. And C. diff is that antibiotic-associated sort of 
bacteria that can um, infect the bowel and cause pretty profound diarrhea, right? Yeah, exactly. So you, you probably heard about it in med school as um, poten- potentially resulting in pseudomembranous colitis or toxic megacolon. <laughs> <laughs> toxic megacolon. What are those great names? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so this is an infection, which is pretty common. You'll, you'll see it quite a bit. And uh, it is mainly caused by patients being on antibiotics, particularly broad spectrum ones like Cephalosporins, um, clindamycin, right? That clindamycin, was, yeah. Yeah, I, wasn't it originally called clindamycin-associated gastroenteritis or something like that? Exactly. I'm very mm. impressed, Raul. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maintaining your non-cardiology knowledge. Um, clindamycin, fluoroquinolones, and um, cephalosporins are some of the biggest uh, culprits. Culprits. Mm. Um, but uh, you can get it after any antibiotic, and um, uh, it's a common problem in the hospital. And, uh, but you can also have patients who are on antibiotics can just have an antibiotic related diarrhea and which is pretty common. Um, it's a bit hard to differentiate between them. You usually need a test in any patient on antibiotics or who's had recent antibiotics who, um, foresee difficile by testing their stool. Uh, but sometimes if it's just antibiotic related diarrhea, it might only be mildly soft, you know, type five or six instead of seven. They probably don't have any abdominal pain or other features of infection. Whereas our patient had this acute rise in, in their white blood cells, they were acute, um, severe diarrhea, and obviously a positive test. So what do you think we should do? Um, increase the cefepime. we got a bacterial <laughs> problem, needs a bacterial solution. <laughs> yeah, so the, the problem is that cefepime will be making this infection worse, right? Okay. So we look at the cefepime and we note that we read our handy ETG on our phone app that we've installed, and we note that the recommendation for ventilator-associated pneumonia is for only seven days of treatment. And Mr. Borborygmus has uh, improved from a respiratory point of view. So we decide to stop his kefepine because he's already day seven. He's had seven days and it's making his, make his C. diff worse. Then we start him on treatment for the Clostridium difficile. So we give him some oral vancomycin. Ooh, oral vancomycin. Don't they normally give that IV? Yeah, so this is the only indication for oral vancomycin. I'm sure you'll see someone stuff this up at some point in your career. <laughs> Just remember, oral vancomycin, it's not systemically absorbed into the blood. It's only st- it stays in the gut, so we only use it for um, C. diff infections. Well, that sounds really handy, actually, as a property of oral vanc. Yeah. Okay. All right, so I guess the lesson there is that if you're on some broad-spectrum antibiotics for a long time and someone develops diarrhea, always think about Clostridium difficile uh, as a cause of that diarrhea, which can be treated with oral vancomycin, which doesn't enter the systemic circulation. Or Are there any other treatments? Is it always oral vancomycin? Oral vancomycin and stop their other antibiotics. Because remember, their other antibiotics pr- um, cause the infection and they'll make it worse if they stay on them. Okay. Yeah. You can't use any other antibiotics to treat C. diff? Uh, so you can use intravenous metronidazole. Um, in the US, they often use uh, fidaxomycin, um, particularly second line, but it's still pretty expensive. It's got... Some evidence that it's got lower risk of recurrence of C. difficile, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, oh, I can't remember the numbers, it's like thousands of dollars for a course. Wow, basically. okay. All right. So, so um, just oral vanc is your go-to? In Australia, usually oral vanc is the go-to. Yeah. Okay. All right. Oral, yeah, oral metro, we probably use a bit less now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we, we just talked about the development of C. difficile and antibiotic-associated diarrhea, but I guess thinking around the AMS you know, path, Scott, what are some of the other broad, broad thinking broad um, side effects of antibiotics or complications of antibiotics? Yeah, so I, I think about um, allergies, um, things like anaphylaxis, which can often ha- obviously happen with any drug, 
or some of those severe delayed reactions. So like severe cutaneous adverse reactions, you'll see, SCAR. Things like um, Stephen Johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrolysis, which are just as bad as they sound. They can be very severe um, syndromes that can cause death sometimes. Those, those are skin conditions where you basically start losing all of your skin, right? Because of an autoimmune mm. reaction. Yeah, you get this necrotizing reaction. Mm. Um, and uh, then I think about kind of more other immediate side effects. So um, for most beta-lactams, the, the common ones are things like rash, uh, is uh, probably the most common side effect. Um, diarrhea, we talked about. Fever, um, acute kidney injury, uh, hepatitis. And then each individual beta-lactam has specific side effects. You know, things like kefepime can cause encephalitis and there's a whole other rare of rare ones. And whenever you see a side effect in a patient on an antibiotic, it's always worth having a quick look and just seeing if you can find any case reports in the literature, if it's something more interesting or rare and you want to impress your read your consultant or whoever you're talking to mm -hmm. um so and then um uh, the gut biome uh is obviously really affected whenever we take antibiotics so th they're still kind of working out different measures of working out what's a healthy gut biome and this is definitely a big area of research at the moment but um, when people are on antibiotics they lose diversity of their gut biome and um, they lose some of these healthy non-pathogenic gut flora and that can lead to overgrowth of resistant bugs Things like vancomycin-resistant enterococcus um, or ESBLs and Clostridium difficile that we talked about. And even things like fungal infection. Patients can have candidemia, which is quite a serious infection with candida in the blood. Um, and some, there's also some evidence suggesting antibiotics can increase risk of getting a second infection in the medium term. So like... That's, yeah, seems counterintuitive to what you'd be doing with the antibiotics. Yeah, so once you've kind of got one infection, then you're higher risk of getting another one. So... Um, this is just some of the reasons why we need to be careful about giving patients too many antibiotics or continuing it for too long. There's also some suggestion that patients after receiving antibiotics can have increased mortality. Obviously, that's hard to separate from other uh, variables that are going on. And even patients who've gone through ICU with severe sepsis who haven't had any antibiotics have, um, have shown to have reduced gut flora diversity. So this is still an area that we're, we're kind of learning about, but we know that um, antibiotics aren't good for you, apart from treating the infection that you need it for. Yeah, you know, only use them when you need them, I guess, is a, is a summary. Yeah. All right, do you want me to, am I, have I earned the right to try another case? Yeah, let's do the, let's do the reading test again. Let's All right. try and read my terrible <laughs> scribbling. 58-year-old patchouli pineapple, now this is more mid-conversation style, is a reluctant, I'm going to say reluctant, as I has been saying, visitor to the hospital after failing to cure her cellulitis with several courses of black market grade aromatherapy. Multiple cumin enemas, <laughs> wow, uh, spicy, and prophylaxis for many months with a jade egg. Oh, wow. <laughs> but Julie's really giving it a good shot on the natural therapies. She is febrile with extensive erythema and well demarc demarcated swelling of the right lower limb. And that spread rapidly over 48 hours. She's admitted and treated with IV benzyl penicillin for erysipelas. What is erysipelas, Scott? So I think a lot of doctors don't know what erysipelas is. And um, so erysipelas is kind of similar to cellulitis, but a little bit different. And a lot of doctors will just call erysipelas and cellulitis the same thing. Erysipelas means infection of the more superficial layer of the skin. And cellulitis means infection of the deeper um, kind of... Um, dermis? Subdermis. Subdermis, okay. And subcutaneous parts of the skin. So um, the really classic difference, if you see it 
in ED or wherever is that uh, erysipelas, because it's infection of the superficial layer, has this really well demarcated, like well defined line. It's like kind of raised, bright red skin, and it progresses really rapidly. Well, cellulitis often has more of a kind of diffuse edge and it comes on a bit more slowly. Okay. Why do we need to tell the difference between these two things? Excuse my naivete. So the only reason that we care is that uh, erysipelas is basically always caused by streptococci, which are sensitive to benzyl penicillin, the, the kind of first line penicillins, whereas cellulitis is still usually caused by streptococci, but sometimes it can also be caused by golden staph. Staphorius. Oh, so we have an opportunity to narrow down our antibiotic here. If, if yeah. Make the right so for cellulitis, we usually treat with fluclocacillin or sometimes kefazolin. But um, benzoyl penicillin will be a better antibiotic that will kind of work more quickly and do a better job for erysipelas. Okay. Great. And then I suppose thinking previously about our antimicrobial stewardship um, ideas, we we'd think about when we could reevaluate what therapy we're on, check the guidelines and make sure we're only giving the right amount and, and think about do we have to give this as intravenous or is there a point where we could give this oral? Yeah, exactly. I, with a lot of patients with cellulitis and um, erysipelas, they really don't need um, IV therapy for very long, maybe even a couple of doses for many of them. And the, the uh, thing that I get asked all the time is um, when we should start expecting the, the redness area to reduce. And that can sometimes take two or three days. So don't panic if two days in after starting treatment for cellulitis, it, it's still it expanding a little bit beyond that line you've drawn. Sometimes it can get bigger for a little while before it starts getting better. Do Can some people have just no IV, just oral antibiotics? Yeah, a lot of people can. Most yeah. people in the community don't need any IV antibiotics okay. for cellulitis. So um, patchouli comes in, we give her some benzyl penicillin for erysipelas. And on day three, she develops a pruritic, so itchy, maculopapular rash over her torso, back, and arms. What's maculopapular mean? Uh, so macules. They had little small patches that are smaller than one centimeter, I think. And papules are little nodules or bumps that I are smaller. Papules stick up. Don't yeah. They? yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty, because you hear that all the time, maculopapular rash. I feel like everyone just says every rash is maculopapular. Yeah. Because it just covers all bases and they're probably... Yeah, it's a pretty safe thing to call most rashes, really. Yeah. Um, and it's either a vesicular rash, like blisters or macular papula. Mm. Um, so she, day three, she, she's got this new rash. She's got a fever. She's got eosinophilia. So we're worried about a drug-related rash, right, which is a really common side effect. So now we kind of review the guidelines. And the first question is, does she still even need antibiotics? Um, well, so she's day three, uh, and I think that if I remember looking at ETG for cellulitis or erysipelas, you're really looking at a normally like five to ten day course. So she probably does still need her antibiotics for this erysipelas. Yeah, at least a couple more days, kind of depending on how she's clinically evolved. Um, and so um, we can switch it to another antibiotic. And, and ETG recommends, or I would also recommend, using oral kefalexin to complete the course of antibiotics for her. Mm, okay, so that's pretty similar to BenPen in terms of its coverages, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, it's good against a lot of um, gram-positive bugs, and it's good against uh, streptococci. But we have broadened out so much that we're going to cause any problems with the resistance here. It's still pretty focused on, on these bugs, isn't it? It's a bit more broad. It's kind of similar to kefazolin, where there's a little bit of gram-negative coverage, so it is kind of easing it a bit more. But, you know, it's reasonable to switch to. And we get asked this question all the time about a patient who's had a rash to penicillin 
as to whether we can start a cephalosporin because there's some cross-reactivity because all of these drugs are beta-lactam drugs that have a beta-lactam group. That's so they the, have a similar chemical structure. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Similar chem- chemical structure for most of the penicillins or for all of the penicillins, cephalosporins and carbapenems. Mm. So um, we used to be really worried and we thought the cross-reactivity rates were really high. But As in if you're anaphylactic to penicillin, that you'd be anaphylactic to cephalosporins? Exactly. But more recent studies have shown that cross-reactivity is actually pretty low. So for patients allergic to penicillin, the rate of reaction to cephalosporin will be between 1% and 4%. Okay. So I guess if someone really was anaphylactic to one of them, you'd maybe want to have a bit of observe time before you just sort of send them home with a box and say, see you in five days. Is that right? Exactly. So um, our first... So if any... If any um, if I'm ever making a decision about whether to give a drug in a patient who has a potential allergy, the, the first thing I want to know is uh, what drug did they have the allergy to and, and what are some of the other options? And then when they had it, was this an allergy that the patient just had this admission or did they have it when they were a kid and they can barely remember? What happens? And particularly I'm asking about how long did the reaction take to come on from starting the drug? Was it an, an uh, anaphylactic allergic reaction or... Was it a slow reaction that took a few days? And did it have anaphylaxis? Did they have throat angioedema? Or did, did they have a severe skin reaction like Stephen Johnson syndrome? Okay, because you'd be a bit more careful about all those things, presumably that's why you're asking. Yeah, so in a case like this, if, the, if she'd had anaphylaxis to penicillin, I'd, I'd probably consider not giving her a, kef, a cephalosporin. But if it's just a mild reaction, then we can probably give her a cephalosporin, keep an eye on her in hospital for now. And um, uh, and and just see how that goes. Okay, cool. Um, there's a there's a little um, there's a guideline you can use called PenFast, which was uh, created by a, a ID doctor from Melbourne. And these are the it's a little kind of scoring system you can use, and and you look at whether and these are the same questions I ask any patient, any doctor who calls me asking about allergies. I ask, was it in within the last five years? Was there anaphylaxis or throat angioedema that meant it was severe? Or was this a severe cutaneous reaction and did it need treatment? And if it didn't, doesn't fit all of those features, like if it was 20 years ago and it was just a mild rash or some abdo pain or whatever, then less than 1% of the patients have an allergy. Okay. Remembering that things like nausea are not technically an allergy or abdo pain either. Um, so just going through some other topics that I'm asked really often about and, and are really important in thinking about antimicrobial stewardship, prophylaxis. So you can look up all the prophylaxis guidelines on ETG or up to date. But the thing to remember is if a patient doesn't have an infection and we're just giving them an antibiotic to prevent an infection, if they have a surgery, usually they only need one dose of the antibiotic just before they have the surgery or the procedure. As, as you would know from your excellent AMS practice of during course, angiograms. Yeah, never give, well, we don't give anything for angiograms, but for pacemakers we give... Uh, Kefazolam forehand and then nothing afterwards. Although there was actually a trial looking at giving a tail and I think it was sort of like there are some minor benefits. But So there, I do see some guys doing that. But yeah, we normally do just the one dose beforehand. Yeah, and, and usually um, uh, you wouldn't want to give for more than 24 hours. So usually it's like three doses max mm-hmm. right. for most indications. Uh, unless they end up with a complication, like infecting complication from the procedure. Well, uh, I guess this is prophylaxis, right? So this mm. is in a patient who doesn't have an infection. Mm. Whereas if, if a patient has an infection, then often Game they'll changes. need like a, yeah. a longer course of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a few exceptions to that kind of one to three dose rule of 
um, like if you have an amputation of a gangrenous limb with sepsis and sometimes they use up to five days for that but and we talked about if you have something like uncomplicated appendicitis then you just have the surgery then you can just stop the antibiotics straight away you've got your source control you're pretty happy right the main thing to i'm sure that you'll if you are careful and look on the ward you'll see patients who've had procedures and things who were just left on kefazolin for a few days and remember you're actually harming these patients by kind of reducing the gut biodiversity you're helping them breed more resistant bugs and increasing their risk of getting another infection. Mm -hmm. So just to quickly talk about infection prevention and control, there are some really key things here. Obviously, hand washing is really important. I'm sure you're very bored of this. I, I don't think there's anything I could say that will, you know... Make it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> make it interesting or change it. But just ma maybe a little um, point to make is that chlorhexidine that we often use for washing hands kills many bugs and, and, and usually staph, but... Some uh, bacteria, particularly ones that use spores, aren't killed by chlorhexidine. So don't think that just because you've washed your hands, it'll work against everything. And that's why we use things like contact precautions for Clostridium difficile um, and, and for some other bugs. So you need a barrier. Um, and yeah, just, just remember the five points and um, try and do that. And maybe the IPC nurses won't yell at you. Mm -hmm. Um, so the other things to look at it, when you review a patient ward brain every day whenever they've got a line in whether it's an IVC or a central line just think whether they need to stay in and there's really good evidence that this would reduce their um, risk of bloodstream infection right yeah. okay so if it's red and it's looking painful and swollen then obviously that's got to come out you got to think about whether you need to put another line in but otherwise you might be okay to just keep reviewing it making sure that doesn't get get worse or change yeah, I mean, ideally take it out if you don't need it, but yeah, mm. also. <laughs> I like to have the option. <laughs> Wouldn't want to have to gown up again and yeah. put another one in the gym. Gown up. I think you're massively overestimating what I do. Before. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's sterile techniques, really important for procedures. My little tip for residents is if you're confused about a procedure, whether it's a um, urinary catheter insertion or a lumbar puncture, just read a guide online beforehand and just think through your steps and at which point you're going to have your sterile field and at which point you're going to have already touched and set up all the things you need to set up because otherwise you'll find you're halfway through and you're like, oh, how do I get this uh, syringe case yeah, open? <laughs> no worse feeling, especially when there's no one else in the room and you're like, maybe if I just roll it towards me. <laughs> <laughs> the patient's family what? member watching yeah. you and <laughs> giving you very awkward eye contact. Would you mind just grabbing the right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just think carefully about how you're going to maintain um, uh, aseptic technique when you do these things. Um, and as another little kind of Easter egg for those residents out there who are constantly asked to replace peripheral IVCs, so you need to look at your hospital guideline around this. this. Your reward for making it past an hour of listening. <laughs> yep, here's your Easter egg. So there was a Cochrane review in 2019, which found that routine replacements of peripheral IVCs compared to clinical review every day, looking for signs of infection or the line not working or um, thrombus was not um, different or superior. So... Um, I think if you need to look at your hospital guidelines about what to do, but it does seem like if you're um, kind of asked to replace an IVC and um, uh, the, you go and have a look at the IVC yourself and you see that it looks really clean, it's working well, there's no signs of infection, you know, it's the uh, kind of dressing isn't all soiled with blood or um, anything else, then it can sometimes be reasonable to kind of just wait and um, ask to review the IVC again in 24 hours. The, the reason is that although we know that having a line in increases your infection every day that it's in, 
it's also true that p- the process of putting a new line in also does have a risk of infection. So I presume it's a little bit, this isn't a good analogy, I've just realized as I'm saying it, but a bit like the takeoff and landing thing with a plane, like putting one in is probably a high risk time and take one out is probably not, but you know, towards the end is probably a high risk time as well. So I guess if it's looking okay, do you want to sub- subject them to another takeoff? That analogy was poor. poor. <laughs> yeah. You know, you yeah. don't win all of them. Yeah, I mean, look, you'll you'll probably be asked to do this and check check your hospital guidelines, but just be aware there's a 2019 Cochrane study you can cite if you're very busy on a cover shift. Tell you what, there's nothing people respond to better than just someone <laughs> throwing a study in their face. Just being snarky, that's the goal, <laughs> which is really what IPC and AMS are all about. True, yeah, that is their modus operandi, so <laughs> throwing it back at them. Fun police and being snarky. <laughs> so... Um, uh, the, another big aspect is to remember screening in isolation, particularly for patients who've had risk factors, who've been exposed to things like CPE or, or you know, been in overseas hospitals, etc. Um, and if you're concerned about any highly transmissible diseases like pulmonary TB or measles, make sure you um, think about testing the patient, discussing with ID. Um, always discuss with ID before requesting tests for either of those two um, pathogens because... Um, you're kind of committed down a certain kind of treatment algorithm once you go down that path. Right. Particularly with measles. They notify the, um, Police. the state government. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean... <laughs> they notify <laughs> Anthony Albanese. <laughs> Let him know. He's got a little, um, like a little Bluetooth speaker in his cowboy hat. He's got a specific phone that's red and rings. Just the measles <laughs> phone. <laughs> it's been another measles test. Oh. <laughs> Going to need an intervention. All right. Um, so, this is the last topic. Dosing. And I thought I would just run through some really common mistakes that I see and that I'm called about. So, um, Raul, are there any ones that you sometimes stuff up or have to check when you when you dose? Um, I well, probably I stuff them up a lot, but I never check. Them. That's, <laughs> that's the key: is not knowing that you've stuffed up. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, that's the that's the message to take away today. Yeah. Uh, if this does end up being used in a medical uh, indemnity case, then I am joking for the record. <laughs> yeah, so re- just remember that um, uh, benzyl penicillin, IV benzyl penicillin, has a few different doses. It's got a much higher dose for things like meningitis than you use for the erysipelas we talked about before. Uh, meropenem has a higher dose for meningitis and keftaraxone you use usually 2 grams BD for meningitis. So that's higher than your 1 to 2 grams per day that you usually use for pneumonia. Hmm. Um, endocarditis remember there's also some different dosings of flu clocks so you'll usually give IV flu clocks 2 grams every 4 hours for um, endocarditis with um, uh, staphylococcus aureus whereas you give a lower dose for um, uh, cellulitis and I often see patients just on a cellulitis dose when they're worried about the staph bacteremia so that's that's a problem Um, and the big other one that people will stuff up is pseudomonas so um Sometimes you need a bit higher drug concentrations to really get in and, and treat that pseudomonas. So the treatment guideline is if you're using ciprofloxacin, which is the only oral agent that can treat pseudomonas, you use 750 milligrams BD instead of 500 milligrams BD for, for a patient with normal renal function. So it seems like a theme there is if you've got a pretty serious infection like meningitis, endocarditis or pseudomonas that you should probably just double check and make sure you're giving the right dose by looking at a guideline like ETG. Exactly. ETG, or you can use MIMS as well um, uh, if you're in Australia. Or um, um, Up to Date has some good um, dosing guidelines as well. As a, also has a really good drug interaction checker that you can just kind of pop in drugs and see if they interact. Mm. Saves a lot of time. 
The other thing that I see um, people missing a lot is uh, pa- uh, checking patients' renal function and their weight. So particularly in patients with fluctuating renal function, it's important to check their renal function frequently and look at the dosings of their drugs because things like ephazolin dosing or um, flucloxacillin dosing can change depending on the renal function of a patient. On the other hand, if it's impossible to get a weight for a patient um, and a patient has sepsis, don't kind of wait 24 hours while you <laughs> get the patient's weight before you the bariatric treat them with scales, yeah. <laughs> Sent down from get, Ward 45. Exactly. <laughs> get the blood cultures before antibiotics. There's, there's good evidence that that reduces mortality if you take a, uh, blood cultures before giving antibiotics in sepsis. But, you know, um, you, you can make a bit of an estimate if there's going to be a big delay and the patient's really sick. Mm-hmm. But definitely do try and get those weights and do try and dose patients according to weights. Yeah, and I guess just keep an eye on things that might change for a patient been on antibiotics for a long time or in hospital for a long time. ICU patients losing a lot of weight or renal function going off, just being aware that during a patient's admission, what was appropriate can become inappropriate. Exactly. And then you can get some drug toxicities. So um, another thing is uh, dosing in obesity is often not very well evidenced. Hopefully more people do a lot more studies on this and, and try and improve the information that we have in the future. But... And, and sometimes they'll have guidelines around this on up-to-date or um, ETG, and sometimes they don't. So if you have a really kind of um, uh, super ov- overweight patient, then um, s- sometimes you might even need to chat with the pharmacy team or ID. And also don't get tricked that some drugs dose by actual body weight, so their weight if they step on a scale, normal scale, and some drugs uh, are dosed by ideal body weight. So that would be their weight if they were at a normal weight for their kind of frame and and that's really just about whether it's a fat-soluble drug, right? Whether it's getting the volume is getting distributed within the um, adipose tissue or whether it doesn't actually go into adipose tissue, in which case it's only going to their muscles. And if you give them one that's you know you think is going to the adipose tissue, you're giving them way more than you think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the other big thing I'm always asked about is dosing of vancomycin. And the simple way to think about it is that um, we usually, well, we often give a loading dose in patients who are kind of sick and in hospital, which is most patients that you'll, you'll probably see as a resident or registrar. Um, and that's, uh, think of that as filling the bucket with um, the, the, the patient's, you know, body water being the bucket and the vancomycin going in there. And then you think that there's a hole in the bucket and it's always draining out, which is the patient's kidneys getting rid of the vancomycin. And then the maintenance dosing has to replace what's being drained out of the bucket. I think that's a good analogy for any um, drug that has a loading dose. So digoxin's the same. You give a a load of digoxin if you want it to work quickly and then you add a little bit in every day. The daily dose is replacing what they've lost. Yeah, exactly. So that's a great way to think about it. And you'll you'll find guidelines um, online, but, you know, often the loading dose will be around 25 mg per kg and then... Just uh, for vancomycin. For vancomycin and then you give a lower uh, maintenance dose and then depending on how bad the patient's renal function is which makes it harder to predict how much vancomycin they'll need, then they'll, uh, you'll need to do repeat vancomycin levels. Does your loading dose change with the renal function or is that generally pretty fixed just based on weight and then it's the amount that you're pouring in? Uh, so that's a bit, probably a bit more controversial. Uh, I, usually I'll just use kind of the lower end of the range mm-hmm. um, for the loading dose. If the patient's um, uh, got very poor renal function, I'll use kind of the upper end if they've got, Okay. Um, good yeah, renal function right. is, is what I kind of do in practice. Um, and the other thing is, the main thing with vancomycin dose checking, like it's not that hard, but it, you just need to be, make sure you know who's doing it. Because sometimes it's the resident who's meant to check 
order that level, check that level and kind of modify the vancomycin dose. Sometimes it's the pharmacist, sometimes it's ID, but just make sure that it's clear Someone who's has responsible. Taken responsible for it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes patients don't get proper dosing for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, yeah, as we've talked about with dosing, if you're ever unsure, not 100% sure, you can just use uh, MIMS, ETG. The Sanford antibody cap is super quick to use. Doesn't need. Um, is it free? It's not free, um, and I'm surprisingly not sponsored by it. Although I probably should send them a message because yeah, I think you've just been plugging them massively. <laughs> you could all get free memberships. I do it at work as well. I'm just constantly plugging this out. It's just so easy to use. It takes like maybe six seconds to get like. Whenever you say question. Sanford, all I can think of is Sanford and Sons. Like you know that song. Oh, I can play it for us now that we've got this right, music mu- ability. Musical break. Okay. <laughs> This is a new med conversations. Okay. <laughs> DJ <Now> Raul. <laughs> DJ skills could use some work. Now that we're through all of that, why don't you give us a nice summary of what we've spoken about today, Scott? Because we've covered a lot of... This has really been more of a principles of ID type podcast, but we've covered a lot of, lot got, of ground. Got pretty broad in the end. Um, so the first thing is, whenever you treat a patient with antibiotics, think about the indication for treatment. Just because a patient's sick, they don't need antibiotics. Some other things are the the cheat guide to AMS is just use the guidelines. So if you're in Australia, ETG, in the US, Sanford or IDSA, in the UK, NICE guidelines. And often if you're in a big hospital, often they'll have their own guidelines as well you can look at, which could be based on local resistance patterns. Okay. So I think one of the other things was reviewing dosing. So, you know, there's patients who have been in for a while, making sure you're keeping on top of their renal function, their weight. Um, If there's any special dosing for the indication you're using, like meningitis or endocarditis basically if it's a pretty severe condition you want to make sure you're getting that dosing right and often those ones have unusual dosing Mm, definitely it's really important to have a step where you review the microbiology after your initial empiric therapy and then you try and direct the therapy against that patient and i think that's part of being a good resident i remember being a resident coming in early in the morning checking the cultures for like the patient i knew we knew had infections or waiting for them to come back and then it's really helpful in the water and like hey I've had a look at the micro this morning. It's back. You know, it's sensitive to this. Could we swap to that? And, you know, that's a big value add you can provide as a resident um, on the water round. Exactly. And often broad-spectrum antibiotics are less effective than narrow-spectrum antibiotics that just work well against a smaller range of bugs. So okay. it can really help your patient. Um, so, again, use suggested durations. Um, often you'll see um, people pushing durations a lot longer than they need, and this will directly help your patient. They're not just a sacrificial lamb on kind of an... Aztec pyramid. <laughs> it will help them. There's good evidence for it. And this one I like. Um, discuss with ID if your team is concerned about the guideline recommendation. So if it doesn't seem to fit, you know, this person was really unwell when they came in and the guideline says give them three days and a pat in the back and send them home, then call ID and say, I just want to confirm that this is the right thing that I'm doing or I'm not sure that this is the right infection I'm treating or whatever. Um, then, you know, they can provide some helpful advice. Yeah, exactly. If you Look at the guidelines first, and if you're concerned about the guideline, we're always happy to chat. Avoid endless prophylaxis. 
particularly with antibiotics, even more than avoiding the, the bottomless normal saline bag, which we've all seen on some surgical patients, where it just keeps just, getting charted again and again saline. and again. The night resident gets asked every night, <laughs> should we continue this? The night resident doesn't really know what's going on with the patient. They don't want to be responsible for anything going wrong. So they say yes. They chart a 24-hour bag, and the next night they're being asked the same question. <laughs> Sadly the key, by the way, if you are a night resident, the key to avoiding the situation is to make sure you chart a bag that ends during the day so that someone else has to answer this question. Key point, yep. And overall, good antimicrobial stewardship will reduce complication rates in your patients. It'll prevent you getting more resistant infections in the future that will be harder to treat and can have increased mortality and morbidity. And it will benefit um, other patients as well. Yeah. Okay, well... That was a whirlwind tour of ID, and I gotta say, I've left been left starry-eyed looking at you, Scott. I, it's impressive how much you guys know. I mean, this is just the, the surface level. This is just the cell wall of this ID specialty. Mm, get into the mitochondria. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> work your way in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good from here, but I am impressed. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe Mr. Quincy Jones could take us away here. <laughs> <laughs>